I know that uh, school is out, <clears throat> summer has uh, begun, and you know, people are in and out of you know, town and, and things like that. I, I remember uh, towards the end of this school year, uh, our oldest daughter, Manny, who's finishing kindergarten, uh, had an end-of-the-year kind of a, a, a program, a presentation, where a party where uh, Olivia and myself were invited to come. And so we went out to that uh, end-of-the-year party, and they had food for us, which was great. Uh, they let us see some of the uh, crafts and the artwork that, that Manny had done. Uh, but the highlight to me was that the, the, the kids in the class, the students in the class, had, pre- uh, had prepared a presentation for us, a singing presentation. And they sang a few different songs, Skinny Marinky Dinky Dink, I Love You. And one of the other songs they sang was um, You Are My Sunshine, My Only Sunshine. And, uh, you know, it was very, very heartwarming. Uh, Manny was uh, standing up in the front with her, uh, with her classmates and holding two of her classmates' hands, two girls, <laughs> and uh, swinging their arms back and forth. And with a big smile on her face, she was singing, You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. And she was about maybe 10 feet away from us. And as Olivia and I were sitting next to her and Elijah was running around and Elise was following him, uh, we were looking at Manny and w- she had this huge smile and she's just staring uh, at Olive, staring at me, singing, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, oh, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. And as I was watching her, you know, I was obviously filled with such uh, love and such affection and such appreciation to the Lord for our daughter and for the joy that she had as she was singing that. I was thinking maybe, you know, she thought about times where her skies were gray and we made her happy. And she was thinking with gladness over those times. But there was a part of me that felt heavy inside because I realized and I recognized that there will be times in life where the skies will be gray over her and we won't be able to make her happy where we will be completely and utterly powerless to do anything. There will be times in our life where the skies are gray and she's not happy and we won't even know about it because we're not near to where she is. There will be times like she's been learning. And I I, I don't know if I I have mentioned this to y'all or not, but when I was growing up, we would have fire drills in every period of class. We'd go outside and we'd wait, fire drill. And then we'd have these tornado drills where we'd go underneath the desk, little kids, And I asked Manny, do you guys have those drills? She said, yeah, we have fire drills, we have tornado drills, but we also have bad person drills. So what is a bad person drill? She said, if a bad person comes into our classroom, then I have to find my partner and we have to go into the bathroom and we have to close the door and put everything we can against the door so bad person can't get in. I thought to myself, this is the world that we're living in. There will be times where she's at school and skies are gray and I am utterly and completely powerless to be there to help her be happy when the clouds come in her life. I think about that and I remember a question that one of my friends asked on Facebook as he started to hear about all of these things that are happening in our world, about terrorist attacks here and about the injustice there and the wickedness here and the evil there. As he started to hear about all those things, he wrote this facetious comment and he wrote, is it even worth it to bring children into this kind of a world? 
Is it worth it to have children when this is the world that they are going to be inheriting? Is it worth it? Last week, we asked this question. What do you do when the foundations are being destroyed? Not only in our lives personally, but what happens when the moral foundations of a nation, of a world, crumble? What happens when the foundations are destroyed? What do you do in those times? That was Psalm 11. Today, in Psalm 12, we're going to ask another question. What happens when those foundations indeed are being destroyed and wickedness seems to be ruling and evil seems to prevail? What do we do? Is there a hope for the next generation? Is it worth it to have kids if we're bringing them up in this kind of a world that's scary, where unpredictable things happen? Every, we, we get alerts on our phone every morning about another tragic accident, another something that happened. Is it worth it? What do we do when the foundations are destroyed? And is there any hope for the generation to come? Let's look at Psalm chapter 12. We're going to read this psalm and we're going to hear what God says about life in these tumultuous times. Psalm 12, next week we'll go to Psalm 13. Uh, a lot of times we, you know, when you think of Psalms, you think of some of the more, more famous and popular Psalms. Uh, I want to dive into probably some of the ones that we may not have studied or we may not be familiar with to help bring out the instructive and inspiring gospel uh, through these. So Psalm 12 for the director of music, according to Sheminith, the Psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with deception. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says, we will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who's our master? Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver, refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. This is God's word. In Hebrew poetry, and especially a lot of times throughout the Psalms, uh, there is... A literary device that if you've heard me preach on the Psalms or preach on Hebrew poetry before, you may have heard this term, an inclusio. An inclusio is basically, it's a bracket, a literary bracket that is formed around a certain clause. So in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, you see a faithful advantage from these two words, among men. Okay, remember that? Among men. At the end of verse 8, what is vile is honored among men. Uh, these two words among men form a bracket. The first and the last form a bracket. Okay? The, the concern of David is that he's dealing with what's happening among men. So he's dealing with what's happening in, in society. And everything in between that is talking about what's happening among men. But if you have another translation, and probably more literal translation, whether it be the NAA, New American Standard, or the English Standard Version, uh, even if you're the old King James Version, it doesn't just say among men. It will say something like among the sons of men or amongst the children of men. 
Quite literally what David is saying here, his concern is about what is happening amongst the children of men. What's happening, not just amongst us, but amongst the children, amongst the next generation. And the concern that David has is what happens when all of this craziness is happening? What happens to the next generation? That's his concern. What is going to happen to them? What is going to happen with them? Where is the hope? What are we looking for? Is it worth it? To have children if we're bringing them up in this kind of a generation. What does God say about it? Two thoughts I want to bring out. uh, Two thoughts I want to bring out about life in this world. The first thing is that the godly sense when times are desperate. Okay, The godly sense when times are desperate. Uh, The first word that David says is help. Typically, that word help is a sign of desperation. David is saying, okay, this is a desperate time. What's happening? Let's set the context. Verse 1 says, help, Lord, why? For the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. I know this was written about 2,700 years ago, but does this not sound a little bit like what's happening in our day and age? Have you ever felt this sense of crisis where we say, help, Lord, for the godly are no more? Do you ever look around life and say, as you're at work or as you're at school and you're trying to live for the Lord, maybe you just come back from a mission trip or you came back from a retreat and you're seeking to live for the Lord. You came back from a Sunday, a Bible study class or a house church, and you said, I really want to live for the Lord. And you get out there into the world in which you live and you look around and people are cursing, they're stealing, they lack integrity, all of these things that you see around you. And you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, there are no more godly people. They have vanished from amongst our midst. That's what David is saying. Do you sense this crisis? You know, there was a time like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when people ahead of the time prophetically would say things like, there is a looming crisis on the horizon for the church in America and the church in the world. And that looming crisis is no longer looming. It's here and we're in the midst of it. And the godly will sense that before other people do. Like a shark smells fear in the water, the godly can sense the desperation in the times. Do you sense this before today? Do you sense the desperation in your heart that we're living in a very tumultuous time? That we're in the midst of bloodied waters right now? That's what David is saying. The godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from amongst the earth. We want our children. I want my children. You want this too. You want your kids to grow up with godly examples, don't you? With godly role models. But the people who used to be role models, examples in our society are no longer the kind of people that we hail anymore. Presidents, the pres- if the presidential candidate does not have the scent of scandal around them, then we think something is wrong. And that's wrong. You think of athletes, I used to look up to athletes, all of these people, I thought they were, I thought they were the moral barometer of a culture. But so many athletes are cheating their way into immortality in the halls of fame because of the ways in which they cut corners, performance enhancing drugs, whatever it might be. You think about, and there are some great, great, great first responders in law enforcement, but then you also see videos of policemen who on their Dashboard cameras are caught on video, not protecting the oppressed and innocent, but oppressing those who are in need of their protection. Teachers who are preying upon their students, and you hear that a lot in Florida. He's saying, help 
The godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from our midst. What do you do in a time like that? Verse 8. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. Here's our issue in our society. That which is vile is praised and honored. That which is wrong is celebrated throughout and paraded throughout the streets. That which is vile has been made right and honorable. And when this affects the leadership, the infection spread far and wide. David is saying we're at a point of crisis 2,700 years before today ever came to be. There's a crisis that is here. The vile is on what's wrong has been made right in our culture and what's right has been made wrong. Everything that God stands for has been vilified and mocked and the world morality-wise has been flipped upside down. Do you sense this crisis? Because this is what, this is what when we have the spirit of God living within us, the godly begin to sense this desperation. I, I, I think of one of the most popular shows out there these days called The Game of Thrones. Okay, don't raise your hand if you've watched it because I might put you on the spot here. I've never watched Game of Thrones because I don't like watching TV shows or movies that are set in other time periods. It's just kind of weird for me. I have to leap a lot in order to imaginatively get into that place. But even if I, you know, I, I, I'm trying to figure out what is the fascination with Game of Thrones. And I type it in and I read some reviews and everything that I read, this is just rampant sensuality. It is borderline pornographic. Violence, sensuality, sensual violence, violent sensuality. And maybe it's just me. I don't think it is, but I couldn't watch something like that and not have my conscience and my heart be seared. But I see believers talking about this show, watching it, not only watching it, but talking about it as if it's the greatest thing on earth. And propagating the message to watch this show to countless other people. And maybe, you know, uh, you shouldn't knock it until you've watched it. Maybe so, but I know enough to know that the Bible speaks against violence and rage and anger and sexuality that is immoral. And it's like we have no moral conscience anymore that what is vile is made honorable in our world. Think this is a crisis in our world. Because the more we let it go, the more we're on a slippery slope. And we've been on this slippery slope for a long time. Get get prayer out of schools. Get God out of schools. Get the Bible out of schools. Bring evolution into schools. Bring birth control into the world. Bring condoms into schools. All of these things. And it's gone to the, don't ask, don't tell. Okay, you can ask, you can tell. All of these things. And it's gotten us to a place where that looming crisis now stares us in the face. And it's threatening to choke our children. What is the hope? Well, let me talk a little bit more about what's going on in our world. What is David talking about? What, what is it? He's bracketed. Okay, this is a situation of the sons of men. But what is he? How do, we, how do we get to this place? What do we see? He dissects it, starting in verse 2, by talking about, you want to get to know somebody? He says, you want to get to, you interested in dating someone? Or you want to get to know the character of somebody? He says, listen to their words. Listen to them talk. Do they complain all the time? They gossip all the time? They're always sarcastic in their tone? They're always angry? Are they always the victim 
Is someone else always the problem? Is there despair and hopelessness? Here, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you know, get to know somebody, listen to their words. That's how you'll know, do they really believe the gospel in their hearts? You want to get to know what a culture is about? Listen to their words. Listen to the way they talk. Because out of the societal overflow of the heart, the societal mouth speaks. And so here's what he says. Verse 2, everyone lies to his neighbor. Now, we, all, we can all recognize lie when you hear it. But literally what he's saying is everyone speaks empty words to their neighbor. What empty words are? Uh, empty words, you can, you can understand why they would translate it as lies. They say something, but they don't really mean it. But literally what he's saying is these words are empty. There's nothing to them. They're talking about nothing. What are you saying? Doesn't that sound like our culture? Got all of these millions of different podcasts. What are they talking about? Talking about nothing. What are we tweeting about? A year later, nobody's going to care about You're not going to care about any of that stuff. What are, you, what are you snapping your instant chatting about? That, none of that stuff really matters. I mean, yeah, people matter. The word of God matters. All that other stuff, none of that matters. We're keeping up with the Kardashians, but none of that stuff matters. And this is what he's saying. This is indicative of a society that's in trouble because their words are empty. We're talking about stuff that doesn't mean anything. So here's the problem with empty words that when it comes time to talk about things that really matter, becomes uncomfortable for us. And so you get in your circle of friends. No problem talking about the TV shows. No problem talking about the sports. No problem talking about the fashion. No problem talking about what you bought, what you ate. As soon as a conversation goes to something heavy. We can't even ask sometimes our brothers and sisters in church, how's your relationship with God doing? Isn't that weird? Get into your Bible study class or in house church, and Lord forbid this happens, but maybe it happens. Get into house church, and people are shooting the breeze, and then, okay, let's talk about something serious, and, and all of a sudden, people feel awkward, feel like they have to make a joke about it. Yeah, it's getting a little bit awkward. Let's, um, let's see who's winning the football game. It's like we can't deal with the stuff that really matters because we're so used to just empty words. Don't really mean anything, and so we can never get deep. This is a problem in our society. Do you see it? Can you sense this? We have problems. So used to all this like silly, fluffy stuff that doesn't matter. And because we're infinitely wide, we're only an inch deep. This is a mark of a culture that is in trouble. Empty words. It doesn't stop there. Their flattering lips speak with deception. Right? Flattery where you say only what people want to hear. You look so nice today. I really like the way that you did. And we're, we're, we're not able to call people out on the things that need to be called out in their lives. And we're so you, if we're so used to being, you want to be a leader for Christ, you want to be a leader in any, any, any area. You've got, to, you've got to be willing to say hard stuff. You've got to be willing to be unliked for speaking the truth. And obviously the goal of life is not to make people not like you, but the goal of life is also not to make people like you. The goal of life is that, well, it, as a spiritual leader, is to help people to become more like Jesus. And maybe there's a hurting that comes on the path to healing, 
But hey, no, no leader is going to get very far if all you're saying is, no, I can't offend people. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give them what they want to say. Because when we do that, we create a Christian culture where people fall in love with the idea of a God of love, but who cannot deal with a God of holiness that calls us to obedience. We're used to flattery all of the time. And so we only hear what we want to hear. So when we hear what we don't want to hear, you know what? Forget it. I'm leaving this church. I'm leaving this group. I'm leaving this friendship. I'm leaving this relationship. David's saying this is what the people are like. He says, not only, but they, they, they speak with deception. Literally means they have double hearts, two hearts. You say one thing, but you're really thinking and feeling another thing. You're saying one thing, but your heart is in another place. We're deceptive people. A Sunday heart a Monday to Saturday heart. Sunday mouth, rest of the week mouth. And this is the way that we have become, and it's a sign of a culture that is in moral decay. Verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Boasting about the fact that not only I can say whatever I want to say, look, I'm in charge of it. He says at the end of verse 4, we own our lips. Who is our master? You can't tell me what to say. I'm my own master. Do you see this in our world? Do you see this in our culture? What do you do about that? He's saying we have lost so much in our world. There's a loss of reverence for God. There's a loss of respect for human life. People can be killed just because of the way they look the way they act when, because they believe something differently than we do. Right? There's a loss of right and wrong. There's a loss of responsibility. I'll say whatever I want to say. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I'm going to go and say whatever I want to say. I'm my own master. There's a loss of responsibility. There's a loss of all of these things, and ultimately the most damning thing about it is that there's a loss of repentance. That we don't care that this is where we are as a people. What do we do? What is the hope when we've gotten to this place as a culture? Our hope as a society is in the response of the godly. How do we respond? And the second thing that we see, second thing that we see, that the godly, right, when in times of desperation, the desperate response of the godly is that we're moved to prayer. We're moved to prayer. What happens when the foundations are being destroyed? Some people run, flee to the mountains. But the response of the God, and this is all of Psalm 12 is David's response to this. It says, verse 1, help, Lord, help. Lord, for the godly are no more. This is what he does. He moves to pray. What do you do when you think about life in this world? You pray for your generation of believers. You pray for the generations to come. This is what, da- this is what David is saying. This is the, the godly response. Not to throw our hands up in the air like we don't care, but to throw our hands up in the air And to lift up a prayer because we do care. Because what (laughs) happens in the future matters. The godly are moved 
the prayer, right? E.M. Bowne said, man, this is it. Prayer is the citadel of the church. It is the scene of heroic and unearthly conflict. It's where the battles are won. It is the resource cabinet for the battle. We pray for your generation. This is the response of the godly. We lift our eyes above the challenge. We lift our eyes above the trouble. We lift our eyes upwards and we find hope. I, when I was a, a first-year student in college, um, I've, I've, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but there was a, a group of us who came from northern Virginia, probably about 15, 20 of us strong, and we were all a bunch of rascals. All of us grew up in church, and so we thought we knew what was up, went to great churches, <clears throat> great youth ministries. We thought we knew everything, had it all up here, but our hearts, our, uh, our holiness, our morality, all that stuff was in the tubes. And so, um, uh, you know, later I would hear from my pastor at the time, Pastor IJ. He would say, you know what, um, this is like maybe 15 years later. I was at a retreat with him, and he said, you know, you know, uh, you know DL, uh, there would be nights every Monday, in fact, where Sungcha, my Bible study leader, Peter, guy named Peter on, Joey Kim, Dave Park. They would get together, and myself, the five of us, and we would say, God, why are these people so stubborn? Why are they so prideful? When will they ever change? Why are they so stuck in their ways? They think they're so bad. They think they're all these things. And, and then our pastor, Pastor Ivy, would say, let's, let's pray. Let's pray for them now. And they would pray, and they would weep, and they would cry, and they would pound on the floor of that house on Stadium Road in Charlottesville, Virginia, and they would cry out for our souls. And now 22 years later, and I, I could go on and on about the work that these men in my class are doing for the kingdom of God, serving as pastors in some of the most influential churches in America. One of, of our brothers, Thomas, is literally changing the continent of Africa. It's just some crazy stuff. Another brother, Alex, who uh, had a vision to just mobilize the world resources for, for the mission of God. And so our giving website, Alex, started that. And, and countless churches throughout the world are using it. And all of these things because they believed that the response of the godly when times are desperate is not to just say, I don't care. I don't know. There's no hope. But it's to fall on our knees and to pray. It's the only hope for our world. It's the only hope. We can talk about this, man. Every sermon we could talk about it, but it's until we experience its power that we realize that he knows what he's talking about in the word of God. The response of the godly is to pray. This is what he says. This is what he does. And as they pray, here's their hope. Verse 5, God, uh, or he says, because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise says the Lord. If I'm an enemy of God, Psalm 12, verse 5, scares the living daylights out of me. That God of the universe is going to rise up and he's going to fight to defend his people. This is what we do. Right? This is what we do. when there's, It seems like there's no hope. We pray for our kids. We pray for our future. One of the things that one of the things that, you know, my, my role as, as a dad, um, I, always, I always told Olive, unless I absolutely and utterly can't, I want to be the one that uh, drives Manny to school and that parks in the church parking lot, not this church, but another church, and, and, and walks her that five-minute walk to school. Because daddy wants to teach her. I, I want to 
hold her hand. I want to walk with her. I want to speak into her heart. I want to ask her about the day, and I want to pray for God's protection over her. And those times to me are precious, and those times to me are, are, are sweet. And there are times where it's raining outside. And I think, man, this is a great, a great time of bonding for my daughter and me. I bust out the umbrella, and sometimes our umbrella is too little. And that point, you know, to me, it doesn't matter that I get a little bit wet. Rain's not going to kill me. I just want to make sure that, that Manny is protected. But I can't, I can't ever recall a time where a parent has opened the door of their car and sent their child out without an umbrella, without a raincoat, and just said, see you later. No parent would do that. Because in the midst of the storm, the child needs protection. Then why is it that we would send our children out into the world without praying the protection of God over their lives. This is our number one enterprise for anyone who is caring about the generation to come. The greatest thing that we can do is not take them out to Pizza Hut, even though that's a close second, is to pray for them. Because unless we're praying, then they're off of the radar of protection. It's just thrown out into the world. And the promise of God is that I will now arise. And then he says in verse 6, and the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Listen, people in our world, empty words, lies, deception, flattery, boasting, talk about all these things they're going to do, but they never pull through. But my God says, when you pray, he's going to rise up. He's going to fight for your kids. He's going to fight for our generation. He's going to be there to be the protector and the defender of the people who we care about and for whom we pray. Uh, for, for whom we pray. God's saying, I will arise purified seven times a meeting. It's been tested. It's been It's been assailed through persecution, through tribulation, through doubt, through all of secular humanism and liberalism, all of these attacking. But the word of God for all of these years has stood true. His promise is true. My God will come through always. When you're afraid, you got to know the word of God. I don't just tell you to read the word of God so that you can grow and feel happy. That's important. But you've got to know the word of God because otherwise without it, in the midst of a turbulent, desperate world, there's going to be no anchor for your heart. And God will be your anchor, but you need an existential anchor in your soul that you know in your heart of hearts, my God is going to be faithful. Faithful to what? Because he has these specific promises that we can stand on. This is our hope. He is our hope. In death, in life, I'm confident and covered because I know the one in whom I believe. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to bring children into this broken world? Is it worth it? If God is on our side, it's not only worth it, it is absolutely essential that we get into this world and we shine our light. Should I bring children into this world? Here's how God answered. Into a world that was so desperately broken. 
God gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him can have the opportunity to not die, but to live the life that is eternal that begins the moment you believe. Yeah, it's worth it. Yeah, it's worth it because we have a living hope. His name is, is Jesus. Do you, think, do you think he understood what David meant when he said, help, Lord, for the godly are no more? Where are the 12 godly disciples? All of them vanished. Were they not the ones who are flattering the very person of Jesus? Were they not the ones who boasted, we will never leave you. We will never forsake you. We will die with you. Where are they now? Jesus understood what David meant. He understood what you and I mean when we say, is there any hope in this world? But for every empty word, every vain conversation, every boasting lip, every time we said, I'm my own God, Jesus took the punishment for us. He took the curse that our lips deserved and we received the life that his lips alone could give to us. Jesus is the perfect answer to Psalm 12, the perfect answer to any storm, to any trial. When we pray, hope and faith arise. When faith arises, hope arises. When hope arises, endurance comes. And when endurance comes, we can march through the land for the glory of his name because this is what our world needs. They don't need the Christians to run into an enclave and hide out. They need us to get out there and to be bold and to be brave and to shine the light of Christ because we know that when we pray, our God says, I will now arise. He hears your cries. Do you know that? He hears your cries for the salvation of your children. He hears your cries that they would be men and women of God. He hears your cries that what they know up here would translate into here and into their lives. He knows what you pray. He hears that stuff. And he says, I will arise. No matter what it might look like now. Hold on to hope. Hold on to the promises of God. The other, the other day, um, Elise was sleeping. Uh, all of the kids were sleeping. But Elise, in the middle, you know, she's, she's just a little baby. I was on my computer uh, doing some work. I forget what it was Wednesday night uh, after a prayer meeting went home. And Olivia had gone out, uh, had gone out that night uh, after I got home. So at about 11 o'clock at night, um, Elise started crying. She cried. And as soon as she started crying, I put my computer down and I ran. But while this was happening, okay, this is what you know, I think about when I think about Elise's situation. She's completely knocked out. For like two, three hours, oblivious to what's going on in the world around her. That her brother is sleeping in another room and her sister is drawing and coloring and that her daddy is out there. and All this stuff is happening. Mommy has left and gone out the door. She's completely unaware to any of that stuff. But in that place of sleepfulness, something jars her awake. A dream, a sound, but something scares her. And she wakes up and she sits straight up in her bed and all she sees is complete and utter darkness. The only thing that she knows to do is to scream and to call out for help, a cry of desperation. And as soon as I hear, I put my computer down and I run. And in her mind, no matter how quickly I run, it's always a little bit too slow. But as soon as she cries, I'm on my way there. And what happens the rest of the night is inconsequential to the point. 
But I think what happens there is a picture of all of our lives. And a lot of times we're living life, resting, maybe sleeping, in the midst of a world where all these things are going on. And at some point in our lives, maybe this morning, maybe five years ago, maybe three years ago, maybe three weeks ago when, all this, when the shootings happen, something awakens us. Something scares us awake and we sit up and we look around and all around all we see is darkness. And the response of the godly in that moment is to call out to God for help. And as soon as we do, he says, I will now arise. And maybe to you, it seems like he's coming too slow. But I assure you, the promise of Psalm chapter 12 says that as soon as you call on his name, he says, I will arise. And his help is on the way. Our response is not to question the timing or to doubt the hand, but it's to trust the heart of the one who promised and who loved. And so as we pray, faith arises. As faith arises, hope arises. As hope arises, endurance arises. And as endurance arises, we go forth into the world, in the world that desperately needs it. And into that world, when the light goes in, the darkness cannot overcome his light in us. Let's pray, my friends. Let's not only pray right now, but let's make a commitment. Do you see? Do you hear the alarm as it goes off in our hearts? Do you hear the alarm? Hear the alarm searing throughout airports in Turkey. Hear alarms ringing out throughout the capital city of Bangladesh. You hear the alarms in every elementary school. You hear the alarms in every home. Hear the alarm. What do you do? The move of the godly in desperate times is towards prayer. Our generation is deeply in need of prayer. This present generation and even more so the generation to come. Our generation still has the remnant of the prayers of a generation before us. But the next generation is awakening to empty banks of prayer. That's us. The baton is squarely in our palm right now. We need to grab it and we need to run. And let's commit to prayer, whatever that means. You need to come to prayer meeting to to, to be faithful to the Lord in prayer. Does it mean you have to... uh, wake up an hour early, whatever it means. Let's not be asleep in the light. Let's awaken for such a time as this. Let's be a people of prayer. Can we pray? Repenting of prayerlessness, repenting of hopelessness when God, our God, is on the throne. Let's pray together for a few moments right now. Lord, help us. God, help us. We still believe that weeping prophets as it was in old can revive a generation, can change a nation, can save a nation, can shift the tide of history. Lord, we believe that. We believe that. Let's pray. Can we pray? Let's pray for a few moments right now, asking the Lord, save a generation for yourself. Lord, help us. Make us into a praying generation of all the things that we can be. Lord Almighty, teach us to pray. Let's pray for a few moments like that, and then we'll continue on.
us take a few moments right now as those who've been baptized or confirmed as an adult prepare to come to this table for all of us let's agree with God about the sin that his word says is sin ways in which we've been empty in our words flattering in our speech boastful in our uh, the way that we live other ways in which we've been sinful, ways in which what is wrong, we have embraced as right, what is vile, we have upheld and uplifted as honorable. Let's ask the Lord that he would have mercy on us, that he would cleanse us. Jesus paid it all for you and for me already, and his kindness leads us to repentance. We're already forgiven, but we need to come and clear the air with God in our own hearts. Let's spend a few moments in repentance. Let's turn away from those sins in order that we might rightly honor the Lord God, that we would be amongst the difference makers. When they say, where are the godly? That they would look to you and me and say, there they are. The faithful are rising. Let's rise among the faithful. Let's confess. Let's repent. Let's turn back to the Lord God this morning. Let's spend a few moments in prayer like that. life but more so in the life to come but who also withholds from us everything that our sins and our vileness have earned for us thank you that you have withheld that from us in order that we might be free we pray that because you have done that for us to honor this life of christ in us that we would labor in the joy of the lord to be faithful to you may your grace not seem like a license to do whatever we want, but may grace constrain us to holiness and Christ-likeness so that the world can see in and through us the beauty of our Savior. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.